Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, we're delighted to be talking with my new friend from up in Canada, Ontario to be specific, Dr. Derek McFabe. And I'm going to have to read this because Derek's got a lot of stuff going on. He's the assistant professor and director of the Kelly Patchell Evans Autism Research Group, Departments of Psychology, Neuroscience, and Psychiatry, Division of Developmental Disabilities at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry in Ontario, Canada. He's also a core member of the iTarget Autism Initiative at the University of British Columbia. Derek's research examines the role of the gut-brain interactions on the identification and possible treatments of autism spectrum disorders. And he does a lot of other stuff, too. Derek, welcome. Welcome to Exploring Different Brains. It's a great pleasure to be here, Hacky. Thanks for having me. Please introduce yourself to our Different Brains audience today. Hi, my name is uh, Dr. Derek McFabe. Uh, I am the uh, assistant professor and director of the Keeley Patch 11's Autism Research Group at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. This is a multidisciplinary research group that has been uh, looking at the um, impact of environment, specifically largely gut bacteria and diet, on the causes and treatments of autism spectrum disorders. My background is in basic science and uh, clinical neurological sciences and neurology. Now, look, let's cut right to the chase. Before I met you through Dr. Steve Perlman of the AADMD, I had no clue as to this whole gut-brain thing going on. And it really opened my eyes not only to the gut-brain, but also to all of the factors that go into the rewiring of our brain. So why don't you tell our audience about the gut brain and where you're coming from on this and say it a lot more articulately than I did. No, you're too kind. You're not alone. This was a very emerging field in developmental disorders, particularly autism. And a lot of the implications of the link between the gut and the brain, parents were actually telling us for years. They were saying, particularly in cases with autism, that um, you know, a, a good subgroup of these children, when they were young, they had a lot of gut issues. They didn't know why, but then as their gut issues got worse, a lot of their children's behaviors got worse. They had constipation, diarrhea, bizarre food cravings. They'd eat things like bread and, and you know, and pizza dough and sweets to the exclusion of all else. And their behaviors got worse, and their autism-associated symptoms got worse, including their gut pain, their sleep disturbances, and everything. And uh, some people empirically just sort of said, you know, maybe if we change their diet, some of these kids might improve. And they did. But the key question was, is they didn't know how. How could something in your gut affect your brain? Was it just that they had an upset stomach? We didn't think so. We, there was a lot of emerging research understanding in the last 10 or 15 years, understanding that we're not alone. We have gut microbes that outnumber our cells 10 to 1. And, and now what we're finding, the nervous system of the gut is as big as all the nerves in your spinal cord. And a lot of research now is, is from fields that you would never believe 
related to neurology and psychiatry, microbiology, infectious disease, immunology. What we're finding out is these bugs might be partly running the show. What we know is they affect our brain development, our immune system, uh, how we interact with the outside world, what we consider to be foreign or good for us. And, and, and a lot of work that we found is that when we eat and feed these bacteria, their waste products are actually tinkering around with our brain development, our energy function, and even our behavior. So uh, again, the families were telling us this link, but there wasn't the technology and the good science done to try to figure out what was happening. And this got spurned on, as you well know, with the disease of autism that was one in 10,000 in the 1950s. And when we started the Keeley Patch 11's Autism Research Group in 2011, it was one in, or sorry, uh, pardon me, 2004, it was one in 180, and now we're talking it's one in 50. So something is going on that cannot just be explained by genetics. And, we, and, and so we started in our small way to focus how could things in the gut, specifically gut bacteria, contribute to autism and autism-associated symptoms. Not only how we get autism, but how do the folks that have autism now who suffer tremendously, as you well know, in spite of having very good restricted interests and even being gifted in some way, they have huge anxiety, huge depression. They have huge problems with their gut. And they suffer a lot. As you well know, they have higher incidences of, of, of depression, even a recent study, suicide. And a lot of us have to not only deal with the causes of autism, but also help the folks that are here live a better life. Because a lot of the symptoms they're having are drastically impairing their ability to, to have a good life. So the first pearl we hear from you is what I used to tell the first year medical students at Boston University for 36 years when I commuted up there from Florida, is listen to your patient. The patient and the parents and the family Listen to them. Even if you're a dumb orthopedic surgeon like me, listen to what they have to say. So that's number one. As you say, they've been telling us and we haven't been listening. Number two is the whole concept of neuroplasticity that our brains at any age, but especially when you're younger, but at any age, they have the ability, they do in fact, actually physically rewire themselves. And that in the June 23rd article in the New York Times of uh, last year in 2015 that was very heavily emailed for the New York Times, um, it was clear that something's up that Dr. Derek McFabe, you were on to, and that we're talking about how the brain rewires itself. So let's step back a minute before we get further into the flora and the gut and their relationship to the brain. Let's try to welcome everybody who is also, who also might be thinking it's genetics. No, it's this environmental factor. No, it's vaccines. No, wait a minute. It's all of the above. Everything has a role to play because we're in an interactive world. And one of the problems I'm finding that a great neuroscientist whose objective like you does not have is you are welcoming all points of view and we want to get everyone in the tent. That's what we try to do with different brains, all the neurodiversities, 
all the different theories. Let's take the good from each and try to figure it out. So now, I want from Dr. Derek McFay, because you're giving Nobel lectures uh, over in Europe, you're all over the world. Um, tell us from your point of view, before we go further into the gut brain, how you see the big picture. Well, like you, you, you hit the nail on the head because you know what it, what's been happening is you you see an illness that's one in ten thousand, and gradually increasing, and uh, like we said, up to one in, in, in up to one in thirty in some populations, and 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 the the old way of just looking at autism, and again, it's not people that are right or wrong. They're looking at part of the picture. It's like the blind man and the elephant. Experts who are in genetics, behavioral all the other things we mentioned about immune system gut. They're all um, giving a part of this, this illness. But this, the standard initial way of looking at this was that this is just a hardwired condition. It's largely genetic. You, you have genes from one or both parents and they, they contribute to uh, kind of a hardwiring wiring issue. Nothing can change. And the way to treat it is solely more behavioral effects or some medications that we use to, to, that helps some of the symptoms. That it, you know, they help with aggression, they help with irritability. They don't do a lot for the, the behavioral effects. And this field is changing, not because somebody was wrong, but because you know science moves forward. There are new techniques available. There's more information. So when we when we see this increase, we have to acknowledge that it can't just be genetics. Genetics can be sensitivity to an environmental factor. But it can also be genetics that make you smart in a certain way that can also make you sensitive to something in the environment. Like there are a lot of illnesses like that. If you're a light-skinned Scot, you've got light skin so you can get vitamin D. But one of the trade-offs is you're sensitive to getting skin cancer if you're in the sun. And what we found when we're looking at these effects in autism, that there are broad effects, whole body issues that are affecting people with autism. They have altered immune systems. They have altered gut and I'm mentioning before, they even have altered gut bacteria. And they have abnormal ways, slightly different ways, that may be good to a certain level of having maybe a hyper-efficient nervous system as far as uh, learning and plasticity, but it kind of overreacts because of the change in the environment. So again, ge genetics are part of it, you know, but, we, but we, we're trying to look at how does environment affect our particular genes in some individuals and not others. And we're finding out that the environment, specifically how it's affecting gut bacteria, which have been changed because we mentioned the superbugs. That people know this in other parts of medicine, in the hospitals. You as an orthopedic surgeon know that the bacteria have been changing because we've used a lot of antibiotics, which we need. But it's also changing the bacteria that come into a newborn when they're born. The bacteria of the mother go into the normal gut of the child. And we think this is a huge effect on priming the brain development in the immune system. And if that can get skewed, and, and, and a lot of the examples of getting skewed is if, if maybe the baby has to have a C-section. Now let's be clear, maybe for a life-threatening condition. Maybe the child is on antibiotics that, for a life-threatening condition that will change those little bacteria growing in the gut or they're in hospital. All those things together start changing the bacterial populations in some of these kids and they affect uh, subtly brain development. So now you're bringing in groups from different views that you would never, like as, as you, you would say, a gastroenterologist or a neurologist or a psychiatrist may just say hi on the golf course 
They don't talk to each other. But now what we're trying to do with our group is bring lots of people together to understand autism. And the work that we've been doing also with human populations, particularly some that migrate from other parts of the world in here and get our bugs, collectively with the Keeley Patch 11's Autism Research Group, we found some remarkable abilities of these bacteria that were found that are associated with patients with autism to produce compounds that have huge effects on learning and memory and immune function, some of which are good, which involve literally some of the things we see in people with autism and their families. They're highly bright folks. They can have Asperger's and be very bright in certain fields. But there is a downside to that in that you can have sensitivity to sounds, very rigid responses to, to uh, interests, some phobias in, 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 in social interaction, problems with light, noise. These are the things where these people that are here with autism suffer. And we're literally finding that some of these things relating to what we eat by feeding these bacteria what the bacteria produce may be contributing to these symptoms that are causing autism early on, but also worsening the lives of folks that have autism spectrum disorders throughout their life. And we think there's an awful lot we can do uh, to actually, um, um, I wouldn't, uh, prevent, prevent is the wrong word, probably improve the trajectory of life of these folks that are already here and, and, and improve their quality of life. Now, you're, uh... Your work was among the top 50 scientific discoveries in Canada, and you're going to be speaking at the Nobel Forum in Sweden on this topic. It looks to me, Derek, like since I've met you, not because I met you a couple of years ago, but coincidentally, it seems to be that you're getting more recognition of your work and with exactly the logic as you're saying. And that's worldwide. That's all over the world. Thanks for your kind words, because, you know, what, what is happening now, particularly this ongoing meeting in Sweden? So you've got the Scandinavian, like, it's like you're talking about neurodiversity. You've got scientific diversity. My folks, the folks in Scandinavia do really good work on, on microbes and have figured out how to understand, you know, there's only one to two percent of the bugs in your gut we ever used to knew about. Remember in medical school when we went, we just thought about E. coli, that's not even a real player in the gut. So the people that understand microbiology and systems biology are being able to figure the thousands of chemicals that are produced in the gut and how they interact with our brain function, our immune function, all this, basically us completely. The other interesting thing they've done uh, is, is uh, follow people. They had the foresight over the last 15 years to take kids that were born uh, some were born with a C-section, some got antibiotics, some didn't, some were off to a rough start. So they didn't do any, any of these kids, but they followed their bacteria every few months all the way up till they're 10 or 15 years old. And you can see if you have a thousand kids, you'll have kids that are healthy, kids that have asthma. Other, all these other illnesses are related to bugs, asthma, obesity, autoimmune diseases. And now the real kicker is, is all these uh, um, developmental disorders. They found that these bacteria, early in life, in the, usually mostly in the first few weeks, but not exclusively, got skewed somewhat. As I mentioned, antibiotics, um, they're life-saving, but if you think of your gut bacteria like a rainforest, the antibiotics can be indiscriminate. It's like clear-cutting a rainforest. 
So this change in these of these bacteria, think of these bugs as running the show and then getting somewhat skewed and then sending mixed signals to our immune system and our brain. And so here's these people working in a very divergent field that's seemingly completely unrelated to, to brain and behavior are finding these, these differences uh, of bacteria can lead to differences in behavior. Now, it's not just the human studies where you follow hundreds of patients. Then you get the basic sciences. My background's neurology, but also basic science. And people have shown if, if you change the bugs in newborn animals, you change their immune system, their behavior. So you're kind of getting away from just correlation to real proof showing that these early changes that occur can set people up in some cases to have these illnesses that may, may show like in autism in the first three years of life, but may also show up in things like depression, anxiety, autoimmune diseases, as you know, as a rheumatologist, or sorry, as an orthopedic surgeon, when you have people that have inflammatory diseases, they feel yucky. They have horrible effects that we just used to equate, like, you know, that they, they're in a lot of pain, but there's more to it than that. These inflammatory conditions are affecting our mood, our, our, our thinking, our sleep. And, and I, as you know, with the folks at neurodiversity groups, these guys have a lot of problems with, with gut symptoms, gut pain, chronic pain, anxiety, depression, all these things at the last, it's the last place we would ever think that would be partly contributors to gut, the gut bacteria. So you have all these groups working together now. This is like our, our consortium that we have. Then you get the guys that are working on brain and fat and energy metabolism. My buddy Richard Fry in your country um, has shown that the, the, the little things called the mitochondria, the little beans in your cell that are the energy producers, that the gut bacteria produce chemicals that we've been working on, not only that cause autism-associated behavior, but change your energy in your whole body, particularly your brain, and affect your fats. We know we have good and bad fats. We know in the field from cardiology, that's where we sort of learn this stuff. But the good and bad fats can affect your brain development. So now you see these people that are gut bug people, epidemiology people, um, people that work with brain energy, people like I mentioned before that work with the immune system. And then, not to get too technical, but we're also finding these little compounds that we're studying. They're called short-chain fatty acids. They're the things that the gut bacteria make. When you eat the carbs, you feed the bugs, the bugs ferment this, kind of like making beer. And these little molecules affect all those uh, brain functions and behaviors, but they're also switching on and off all the autism genes. So you can have a broken gene, which the geneticist would say, you have a defective gene, you've got an extra copy of a gene, or you've got a gene missing, as an analogy like a light bulb in this room being on or off, uh, being you know broken, if you will, but we're finding out that our compounds are are twitching on and off these genes like a dimmer switch. That's very encouraging because by changing the levels of the these gut bacteria or what they produce, partly by diet, partly by certain things that are probiotics and and other things that that are being done to help the body handle the effects that the bacteria produce. Now, I'm not, we're not advocating things yet, but it's starting to show that this is the direction um, where nutrition and, and gastroenterology and infectious disease and metabolic experts are going to be affecting these um, autism spectrum disorders. 
which is, is extremely encouraging because here's a new venue for improving the lives of these folks, preventing people, like I said, that are born. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of sticking out on a limb at a level, but I just think a lot of these kids, when we know their chemistry and their relatives, they're off to a really good start, but they can be very sensitive to, much more sensitive to these environmental factors that I mentioned than other people. So by, by smoothing things out when they're born, we're not taking these people away from who they are. We're, we're, we're preventing something really good from being more, more sensitive. Like I said, a light-skinned person being more sensitive to sunlight. Uh, if you keep away a lot of sunlight, you let that person live a normal life. And that's what we think is happening with these early gut-related factors in, in these folks with autism. And, and a lot of futures for new therapies, medications, the things we're doing now, understanding about the superbugs I mentioned that we normally deal with in your field with, you know, surgery, being more careful with these things, breast, you know, having C-sections, uh, trying to reduce them unless they're needed, breastfeeding, the diets, much more vegetables. All these things are going to go a long way to reduce a lot of chronic illnesses, but also psychiatric diseases, depression, anxiety, and autism. Now, why so they might be coming from something very simple. Derek, why is it that we're focused on autism with this as opposed to everything else? I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but what I mean is, is the object of research that you're doing um, is more focused on autism as opposed to all the other different kinds of different brains. How do you perceive that, that it's focused on autism? Well, that's a very good point. My particular view is these conditions are very similar, and they, as you know, they kind of overlap into each other. So the autism picture is, is more, not totally just special, it's just more obvious early on in life, right? And the symptoms initially are more severe. But what we showed, you know, in layman's terms, we showed that what these gut bacteria could produce can cause anxiety, obsession, being more interested in objects, being very rigid, being being very sensitive to sensory input. And by the way, let me interrupt you to say this. When you and I first met <laughs> long distance, one of the things that grabbed me after speaking to you was you sent me a video of these rats who were getting along just fine. They were doing just great. And then you messed with their floor and their gut. And all they would do after that is run backwards. At first I thought, Maybe he just put the film in reverse, but you didn't do that. They, they all yeah, they would do is that. run backwards. It was that was worth more to me, in my brain, the way my brain works. That a million pages of dissertations, I saw it. Yeah, it's, yeah you're right. Now, actually, just as a not to plug, you know, we're not for profit. You can go on our web page, do autism and MacFabe, and you can see some of the lectures and videos. But we were shocked when we gave these compounds to these animals. They were hyperactive. They didn't interact with each other socially. They did the same thing over and over again. They had the tics. They were anxious. They could learn things like crazy, but they wouldn't unlearn them. It's kind of like us going to England and saying we refuse to drive on the, on the left side of the road. So the biggest level with your question is these abnormal gut bacteria producing things that aren't just causing autism. In higher amounts, we think it's dose and timing. While the brain is growing, there are critical periods, but that's not the only period. So 
you know, anxiety, obsession, different interests, uh, obsessive compulsive behavior, kind of getting stuck, if you will, is a, over a broad number of conditions. As you said, autism, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorders, eating disorders, the tick disorders, pandas, you know, the, the Tourette syndrome, uh, 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 general anxiety, depression. So you hit the nail on the head. We're, we focused on the autism picture, but what we're finding is these gut bacteria are sculpting broadly our brain and behavior. And the neat thing is it's reversible. Now, say I'm the family of an autistic individual, or I have Asperger's, and I might get a little defensive about this. I might not have heard what you were saying carefully because I noted what you were saying. You were saying, we want to keep the gifts. We just want to help everyone maximize their potential for health, happiness, safety, productivity, socialization in a world that's very social. And we don't want to ram anything down anybody's throat. There's so much information and misinformation in autism. And again, we're trying to bring a lot of groups together to, to exchange the information. Again, diversity, diversity of different expertises, diversity of different types. And, and but, but I also want to be clear, you know, what we're not saying. But I'm also saying just if people from different backgrounds on our webpage, we have a, about 30 peer-reviewed papers that have been vetted. That, that is important you know, as scientific fact for our research, you can see a lot of the information. And I don't want to, because this is more of a conversation than the science thing, but but, but let's, let's um, look at anything saying, you know, we have different sorts of people, don't we? And, and, and that's part of society. Let's look at as an, as an example that you mentioned, there's different kinds of horses. You have plow horses, you have race horses, they all do different things. You have show horses. But let's take the idea of one type of horse, like a racehorse, as an analogy, uh, and look at that kind of like at the difference between giftedness and having problems in this amazing overlap between autism and, and giftedness and, and severe illness and, and, and problems with a racehorse. You breed them. I would say that it's partly their genetics. It's partly what you feed them. And it's, I, you would argue from our stuff, it's partly their bugs. Now, when you re breed a racehorse, that racehorse is very specific, and then one would look at it in some ways as the pinnacle of horses, how, how great it is. But it, it's not a plow horse. We need plow horses too. But in a racehorse, you want a racehorse that, lo that loves to run. So you want a horse that's brain works really fast, its nervous system works fast. You want it to have a big heart so it can beat, because it's got to beat to be a good athlete. And you want it to have a very thin body and thin legs. But the, the problem with those racehorses is they need handlers. They're not good at plow horses, and we need plow horses, so they need handlers, and they need horse therapists, if you will, to get them to do what they do. But think of the breeding of that racehorse. Hold, you know, hang on with this analogy. We like making analogies. The problem with having a horse that loves to run and does thus, if it doesn't run, it has severe anxiety. And some horses are so skittish, they, they, they aren't, even though they have all their genes and bugs and training and food to make them run, they can't run. They have mood and anxiety problems. Sound familiar? Other horses have a big heart. And this is a medical fact. You want a big heart to be able to pump. But if it's too big, your heart uh, electrical activity can short circuit. 
And this is why some racehorses die. Gifted racehorses can die. And you want to have thin legs, but if the legs are too thin, they break. So this is similar to the picture of all the biology that seems to make us have good memories, fast nervous systems, very good in certain fields. Also, in those individuals and their relatives, make them sensitive to having a lot of problems. We see this in a lot of people that are very gifted. They also suffer tremendously with mood disorders, depression, overlaps of, in their families. Of, you mentioned all these illnesses, bipolar, schizophrenia, anxiety disorders. So you can see when we're dealing with, with, with this spectrum of autism, we, the very things that may, are good about it can also get them into trouble. So here's what I would, if you could follow me from that, here's what I would respectively say about any behavior that happens in, in autism. You know, one, and I don't want to put words in my mouth, I just want to show why our view is a little bit different. People could go with, um, say, in a, a neurodiversity response, which I agree, that we are all individuals, we have different kinds of people, and part of these people have to be enriched, and they need to be able to live their lives as they see fit, and that's fine. But there are people within that group, like those racehorses, that, that are suffering tremendously. They have high even though they're high-functioning Asperger's, and, and many of them write to me, and they've taught me so much in, in Skyping and, and emailing, how they are very aware of their incredible fear and phobia when they're very bright and they have to give a public talk or even try to have a relationship with someone, how it's absolutely paralyzing for them, and how, I think you've seen there's a paper that's just out in the news, how folks with in these conditions have high incidences of depression and suicide because of their symptoms, not the, not who they are as a person, but the symptoms associated with them. They're suffering tremendously. And then you have other examples that in autism, I didn't touch on this earlier, but people with autism have higher amounts of self-injury. They have higher amounts of seizures. So we have to treat these people. We're not changing who they are. We're giving them the same rights as a patient that we would give anybody that came in like one of your folks for a hip replacement. We have to deal with that. So, you know, behavior is an extension, but it's like anything else in medicine. There are, there are extremes of that behavior or, or, or processes that we have to treat. As an analogy, we could say blood pressure. Everybody's got different blood pressures. And we, we need to have high blood pressure and we need to have low sometimes. We'd agree with that. That's part of medicine. But we don't say don't treat the very, very high blood pressure. Because, you know, we know if the blood pressure is really high, you'll have a heart attack. You'll have a brain bleed. We, we treat the very, very low blood pressure. We don't, we don't disregard and say everyone has different blood pressure. So that's my plea to the groups that I people that know me understand. We're not in the business of trying to take someone away. We're, we want to alleviate the suffering. You know, I, I would be, uh, also from my view in neurology, a lot of these children, there's a spectrum, as you know, and you have everyone's suffering is unique. It's not anyone's better than someone else. But you see people that have severe self-injury will hit them their, their head 300 times a day. That's some of the patients we see in neurology. They'll have uncontrollable seizures. They bite off their fingers and toes. We, we have to treat those people and, and we, because they're suffering. We, we don't say that's part of the behavior. But the, so, so what we have in our research is we're, 
we're trying to, we, we realize that the genetics of autism is not something that's, uh, that, that is as simple as a prenatal test. It's multiple genes and environment. And it's not that we're trying to prevent people from being here. We're here to say that here's an individual that has the biology and immune system and neurocircuitry and neuroplasticity that has great promise, but he's kind of like a racehorse. We have to be a bit more careful how we're handling an individual with that kind of chemistry. Not to get rid of them, not to, to, to prevent them from being themselves, to help them, to nurture them. You wouldn't deprive a person with diabetes of, of insulin if they needed it. And you're not changing the person, you're enabling the person to be themselves. And, and, and this is our view on the Keeley Patch 11's Autism Research Group. We're trying to prevent the environmental factors that these folks are sensitive to. We're trying to protect them from that. That's different from preventing them from being here. We're also trying to devise these newer medications and, and, and dietary things that are dealing with the stuff, immune system, gut, and brain development, that are going to improve the lives of these folks. So this is, my, this is a very different philosophy, and I don't want to put words in the mouth of other groups, of saying we're just trying to prevent someone from existing or just kind of medicate. So I don't, it's a bit of a speech, but uh, do, do you see the, this is the view, and I, I commend you reaching out to us, seeing that that's the, the kind of work we're trying to do, to, to improve the lives of people here. I, I have views, and I've seen, if I could take some of those patients that are very, very severe in a different way and improve them to be people like in the neurodiversity groups, I'm very happy. But it, but even for the folks that are here, the people that have a preferentially less autism-associated symptoms, right? They're verbal. They're in the Asperger's group. It's not like they ain't suffering. They, they have huge phobia and, 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 and problems that they, they uh, um, again, everyone's an individual, but I see many that we were dealing with that are lonely. They want to be able to have relationships. They would like to go into a room that they're not having a massive panic attack. They would like to be able to concentrate on what they were doing and ha not have all these obsessions and compulsions kind of railroad them from being able to do the things they want. So I really commend you with what you're trying to do and to let us you know in our way that what we're doing may be somewhat different than what some people may perceive our research is about. And again, it's got to be people bring coming together, not disregarding people. Like taking a step back in the microbiome, if the bacteria are very complex, it's stable, there's interactions, and, and we think society and science has to be that way too. People at the table not saying you're right and I'm wrong. We're looking at parts of these groups, that's our research setup, that we had to start off in basic science because it seemed very radical. We have to exchange and share information. What I can say at general levels, we have to be careful because as I said, a lot of these treatments in the future are in evolution. But there's a lot of things that you can see on our research in lectures and website that people are finding out that now, uh, that a healthy diet that is low in the, in the refined sugars and certain kinds of refined carbohydrates that feed these bugs helps. Eating a diet that has, when you're eating your, your um, uh, uh, carbohydrates, having this may sound really oversimplistic, but having diets that are more vegetable-based rather than grains and breads and sugars, and the hidden sugars that are in the refined foods, 
and in, in, in the juices, rather than, you know, juice has a lot of hidden sugars. Eating foods like that, we have less refined sugars. Eating more fermented foods, which help these bacteria uh, in your gut stabilize. So your real yogurts, your, your fermented cabbage, it sounds like something out of what your grandma would say. But these are huge things that are relating to improve the well-being of these folks. There are medications that are in evolution in lar larger groups that are not medications that are, are blocking uh, aggression, like a major tranquilizers, which are the traditional treatments. But there are things that are coming not just with us, but others. The omega-3 fatty acids that are used in fish oils and a compound that we've been working with called carnitine. Long story short, it's low in autism and the gut bacteria seem to be um, uh, preventing its activity. These are, these are medications that are working on me metabolism and immunity. Now, again, we can, the publications of our work and others are all on the webpage. We're, we're not involved in industry. Our job is to share and develop information. But these are the things that are coming down the pipe that, to help these folks. Was there an aha moment that brought you into this arena of the gut brain where you started to put it together and you said, aha, this is what it is. Was there such a moment for you? That's a really good point, because as you know, a lot of things happen from a series of accidents. And I actually was asked to write a paper on it. Um, I can uh, send you the link to it on, on how we ended up thinking of something as absurd as something produced by a gut bacteria could be controlling brain function and behavior. And, and uh, just as an aside, uh, you know, when I was younger, I worked with a lot of special needs kids. I had a longstanding interest in working um, in doing medicine and, and um I saw a lot of these children with autism spectrum disorders, and, and uh, I was amazed that a lot of these kids were in there. Like you'd have one person nonverbal, and all of a sudden the mother would bring them in, and they'd play Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin on the piano. And another girl with autism and blind would be singing all these songs. And here I was like a teenager, pretty ignorant, and I was just shocked by this. Again, that we learned this more in neurology. You know, it's the schism between part of the brain having a problem and everything else not working or even working better. So I was always interested in stuff and I did a lot of work as an undergrad in Canada looking at brain development and, and, and behavior and, and stuff. And then I thought this is how basic science researched and I did a lot of work in epilepsy and brain development, Alzheimer's disease. And I went through medical school and then I saw a lot of, you know, like the training like you had, we did our traditional stuff. My my training was in neurology and neurosurgery, but I'd see all these people when I did my gastro having all these gut problems and be really smart and intelligent, but a part of their behavior, you know, like I was saying, huge anxiety, huge pain, very obsessional, kind of, you know, not to be in kind of Woody Allen-esque in their, you know, giftedness, but also all these other symptoms. And, and I was wondering, hey, you know, could something in the gut be doing this? And then people, as you mentioned, you know, typical in our training, they'll say, well, we didn't find anything in the gut and everything. It's just, you know, ship them off to psychiatry. It's all in their head. But I started wondering, again, musing between patients, is there something in the gut? And then in my training, I saw a lot of people that had toxicity problems. Their thyroid was a mess. Uh, there was a lot of cases in alcoholism in the university hospitals where I worked. And I saw these people with liver problems and brain problems 
completely, you know, metabolic problems, be completely, you know, for want of a better word, out of it psychiatrically, and then finding that it's a metabolism problem. And, you know, right at that time during my residency, uh, this would have been back in the 80s, then all those Clostridium difficile superbug infections were occurring. And uh, just as a step back for those not in medicine, what it was is the patients would have the gut surgery, been given a lot of antibiotics well-meaning to clean out the gut. And as I mentioned earlier, you would clean out all the good bacteria, and then these weird superbugs would come in, and patients would have horrible gut problems, and many died. So here you had an idea, like I mentioned earlier, that metabolic things and people with autism could be in there in some ways and very good in some others. People could have gut problems and have problems that made them also smart, but also have other symptoms that got in the way of their life. And then all these um, gut uh, superbugs were occurring. And then when I was doing this kind of research, I had this weird idea, hey, could something... Uh, could a, a weird gut bacteria produce something to to uh, um, lead to autism? Because all the autism cases were just skyrocketing. As you know, it was like, you know, there was doubling around that period of time. And all these kids were having these gut problems. There was an increase. People were looking at a lot of environmental factors, uh, you know, at some level with somewhat tunnel vision. People, you know, the, the vaccine hypothesis was looked at, but people forgot there were other things happening at the same time. The kids, as I mentioned earlier, they they were in hospitals. They didn't. They had C-sections. They were sick. They had antibiotics for either early on, they were up to a rough start, or they were on antibiotics for ear infections. And we saw that in a lot of other folks that had dual diagnosis, Down syndrome as well. What do you so, say, Derek, what do you say to uh, some of the writers and some of the authors who are saying, there's no increase in it, we're just diagnosing it more. What would you say to them? I'd, I'd say respectfully, you know, when you see something, at the very least, it's a lot more common than people thought. But I could show some very good studies around the world, particularly some excellent epidemiological work in your own, in, in California, that people would, as you would say, they'd say, oh, we're just, we're more aware of it. Uh, than before. Uh, in the California case, they're saying, well, we're just calling another illness autism. And I'm not saying that couldn't be part of it, but others were saying, oh, everyone was moving to California for the quasi-Canadian healthcare system down there. So the epidemiology work done there with uh, Dr. one of your best epidemiologists, Hertz Picoto, she found there was a 700% increase in autism in, in, in uh, the epidemiology they did in California. One-seventh was due to migration or change in diagnosis. So I believe this is a very real increase. Could you please give us a, uh, a little piece on one of the exciting new developments that is a little bit controversial, um, the fecal transplants? Now, uh, it's, it's a fascinating field and uh, um, and in layman's terms, what, what this means at a broad level is, as we mentioned before, if these patients that have gut problems, and this is for a lot of illnesses, uh, are so dysregulated, is there a way that we, like the rainforest, if it will, the gut is so clear-cut that it's so unstable, can we put normal bacteria in 
to try to stabilize the gut. Now, this it, now this is the, the the short answer. This this is the future of the restoring of the microbiome will be the future in a lot of illnesses. But I have to caution. It depends what illness you're talking with. You have to understand something before you can you can do it. And like I told you, it's you know location, location, location. You know timing and not in excess. So taking a step back, this idea of putting healthy stool, which sounds really crazy, uh, into a person that had this disease, Clostridium difficile, where there we know what caused it. The high amounts of antibiotics before surgery wiped out the normal bugs. It's kind of like completely, you know, killing everything in a rainforest, and all of a sudden, all these, you know, weird animals, one kind of animals, mice, just start showing up. So this was done with patients with Clostridium difficile. In our country and yours, who were elderly, they were near death. Again, we knew what the disease was. We knew the cause of it. We knew that we had nothing else to offer them because the antibiotics wouldn't work. And so these people had remarkable cures in these limited studies. And that is being looked at in a lot of this severe disease. Now, that is a big jump, even though we think this is the future of saying, do we do this for patients with autism? I'll tell you why. We have to understand it first. One is we are understanding it more. We are looking at the, not ourselves, our collaborators, are looking at using normal bacteria from humans for inflammatory bowel disease. Those are ongoing studies. That Again, it's a very severe disease that we sort of have more knowledge of what's occurring and other severe infectious diseases. That's a big step between trying this, even though it's the future, we've written position papers on if, if it were to be done, how is it supposed to be done in the proper research? In children that you, don't forget, in many cases, this is a child that does not have informed consent. We are in our evolution of understanding what the bacteria are involved. One has to be honest to know what are the long-term consequences. Do you want to possibly improve autism but give someone bowel cancer later? Not that it will. These are just real ethical concerns. So these are things that need to be figured out in proper studies that, that a number of good groups are looking at. You have to be dealing with people that are experts. So people could say they could be abhorrent with the idea of using feces in a healthy person to treat an illness, but I could say, what if somebody says you have a bad heart and we're going to cut your heart out and we're going to put a, a dead guy's heart in you? That seems terrifying, but that is life-saving. But the point is that is done not in your basement, not on your own. So having said that, this is a very exciting future for a lot of illnesses, not not just these autism spectrum, but but those of us also doing animal research are showing the capacity that changing the bacteria can change the behavior of these animals later. There's another third option. People have talked about probiotics. That's being done too. It's safer. But there are a lot of collaborators in Scandinavia. Dr. Tor Medved, he's a, a world expert in microbiology. And what they have done is a different view. Because of the risk, I, I should have mentioned, if you're taking normal stool from somebody, you don't really know what you're getting. You could be getting things that could give you resistance to an infection. You could be giving a virus. There's all potential risk with that. Having said that, it's been quite safe for the illnesses, the, the, the um, 
clostridium difficile infections. But the other guys are saying, why can't we take all the flora from a human uh, being, grow it, understand it, study it for 25 years, be able to make sure that there are no nasties in there. You see, this is the future of probably treating some of these illnesses. And again, this is an evolution. There are a number of trials that are being done. It's not the same as a fecal transplant. It's human uh, cultured intestinal bacteria defined. So now it's stable. It's understood. So again, these things are being done in proper studies. These have to be done scientifically. We don't want to make it worse. And we want to be able to understand in animal and, 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 and very well done studies how we're improving these folks for a whole host of illnesses, including autism. The good news is in the studies that this has been done, uh, they've been remarkably safe for these severe illnesses that are life-threatening. And the direction is starting to consider using these things in the future. I caution because I'm not knocking things, but there are people that say, I've tried this, I've uh, uh, do it yourself. I, I can't in good conscience, I can understand it. I sympathize, but medically and scientifically, I can't, I can't condone it unless things are being done correctly. Well, you know, Derek, that's what's one of your strongest points is that you are a researcher. You are a scientist. You are an objective scientist. But a doctor, too. <laughs> that's the point. You're a doctor and a scientist and a researcher, and you've maintained your objectivity throughout this in very emotional areas, really. In our conversations, you've expressed your own anxiety over your concern that the profiteers are going to come in and say, take this pill or take this particular probiotic. or So you've done a good job starting out now. I like to give our viewers real tools they can use, okay? And you started out with what constitutes a, quote, good diet from your point of view. And give them some of the specifics that if uh, I'm in a family with someone whose brain is different, or I'm just anybody who wants to eat a healthy diet, um, tell us some of the hallmarks and some of the takeaways. Eat um, less food, mostly plants, not exclusively. You know, a complete vegan, that's another topic, but it can run into trouble long term. Short term probably helps. But the biggest thing we're eating, we're eating too much refined sugars. And mostly a lot of the sugars that are refined, they're hidden. So if you're buying something that's um, frozen like a TV dinner to keep it from tasting like cardboard, it's full of salt and it's full of hidden sugar. So when you're eating your fresh foods, it's mostly lean meats, fish. Uh, more of that, a lot more vegetable-based carbs rather than the bread and the potatoes and the rice. I'm not saying don't eat it because some people are completely advocating it. And to be clear, there are some subgroups you know, with gluten, uh, uh, celiac disease and gluten sensitivities that this is an evolving field. But you're asking me about everybody. We eat way too much of the sugars, and we eat way too much of the refined breads. If you're going to eat breads, eat whole wheat, and eat breads that are a rock at the end of the day. They're, they're not the ones that have a lot of preservatives. Uh, that's an aside. The compounds that these bacteria 
we've been studying. It's called propionic acid, but it's also not only do these autism-associated gut bacteria make it, it's a food preservative in a lot of these foods. That's not saying it should be stopped. I'm just saying it, it's, it's a caution. So people eating far more vegetables, so your squashes, so your spinach, your kale, your, your beets, your root vegetables, um, you know, your zucchinis, like Mediterranean eggplant, eating a lot of, you know, you don't have to be a great chef, slather it with olive oil and a little bit of spices and throw it on the barbecue, throw it in the oven, eat it, make soup out of it. It, it doesn't have to be fancy. And like I said, getting into the fermented foods, there, then it gets also confusing. Because I mentioned before, the glu all the gluten casein-free foods are also loaded with sugar to make them taste okay. So eat the whole foods. You get into the yogurts. I told you fermented foods and stuff. But not knocking companies, because this, this isn't what we're in the business of doing. But sometimes they'll say, oh, it's a fat-free yogurt. Now, there are actually good fats in the yogurt. So if it's fat-free, again, to keep it from tasting like cardboard, it's full of sugar. So again, real yogurts, the, like, like the, the ones that have different cultures, and, and mix it up. If, if you're eating one particular brand that has a particular bacteria, it's, in some cases it's not entirely clear that's worth twice the price. But if you're going to eat different types of, of fermented foods, you're going to make it more complex. So you're going to help your bugs in a level. The other thing that's very important is even medically, antibiotics are life-saving, and it's we're not against them. They've saved lives. Hell, you know, they saved my life when I was a kid. They're not bad, but there are consequences in children early on and later in life to take large amounts. So again, consult with your physician. All of this I'm saying, don't go it alone. Consult with the physicians. The microbiome and the immunity stuff is really coming down the pike. We're changing education in medical schools. This isn't fringe anymore. So eating a lot of these fermented foods, your cabbages, your kimchi, your, you know, your yogurts, and, and uh, you know, alcohol, low amounts in moderation or none. You know, there's a lot of hidden calories with higher amounts. And there's some examples of people that have overlapping Asperger's and mood disorders, and certainly the overlaps of people that have seizure disorders, you can get into trouble. So the, like the diet that I'm saying that people should eat is like what I eat and what everyone should eat. And, and it doesn't mean, you know, are you going to go nuts and have a piece of cake once in a while? Of course you will, but you will not eat it every day. Six, you know, 60 years ago, people had a roast once a week. And they had soups and they had other stuff. And we have to sort of get back to that. We, we can't go completely back to the old way. But there is a lot of hidden uh, high fructose corn syrup. The biggest thing is, is the refined sugars. So in layman's terms, these refined sugars, we're eating them and we're feeding these back. We're not just absorbing it. We're feeding these bacteria to produce these agents that affect inflammation as you in a lot of illnesses inflammation, immune function, and brain. So this is why a lot of us feel like, pardon my French, crap. <laughs> because the crap, the bacteria, is literally having a huge role in, in broad diseases. Obesity, don't forget obesity, metabolic syndrome, inflammatory diseases. You know from your background in orthopedics, these people are suffering more than just a sore joint. They have major depression, they have chronic pain, 
And again, we used to just think, well, they're in pain, just like in autism. You know, they're in pain because their joints hurt or they have, they're in pain in autism because their stomach hurts. But now it's showing that there's stuff in the gut that is producing compounds, largely worsened by our Western diet, that is affecting our long-term health. Like I said, early in life, it, 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 it can stem from whether or not you breastfeed and have a C-section in the hospital. Again, these are things that are life-saving. They're absolutely necessary. But using these things with antibiotics for 60 years have had consequences. So I'm more of the middle of the road rather than the radical view that we all have to run. Like we can't run back and live like our ancestors did 100 years ago. We'd have less antibiotics. We may have less autism, but we'd also have 50% infant mortality. So these are the, it's, it's the middle of the road, moderation, and understanding the most important levels are people, women about to get pregnant, newborns. These are a big picture, not exclusively. This is a big picture about these chronic illnesses. Derek, um, would you mind giving our audience a way to get a hold of you and the actual websites to go to so our audience can get a hold sure. of you? So if you just um, if you just do my name, M-A-C-F-A-B-E plus autism, just Google it and you'll see the, the Keeley Patch 11's autism research group. On my webpage, you can see uh, all our, a lot of our research. Uh, the publications are there for free downloads. Other publications that we're doing now, again, they're and lectures. They're from different levels. That uh, can be for uh, family members, but also clinicians, basic scientists, and researchers. What I would urge uh, constructively is there's some very good publications and reviews. As, again, discuss this with, with your your or your your child's doctor. That's the most responsible way to deal with this. Well, Derek, thank you very much for being a guest with us. I think one thing I learned today is we're going to have to have you back because I don't think we stretched the tip of the iceberg here. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us, Derek. I can't thank you enough, Hacky, for what you're doing because you're handling a very difficult issue where a lot of people are suffering. A lot of people have quite understandably fear, but there is so much much misinformation and sound bites in the field. And you've you know allowed us to just talk and exchange this information and know that you know in order all these people from different views of autism, they all want to help people, and they all using their diverse expertise they're good in some, like all of us good in some things and others you were a boxer you got an efficient nervous system not at you i was a goalie I, I can react to stuff so that probably makes us a little different too but at the same time you know i find this you have this when you start meeting people from other backgrounds and expertise and you take all the preconceived notions away you'd be surprised with what you're trying to you wouldn't be but others may be surprised that how really good things happen. And I think uh, what we're doing and what you're doing right now is gonna bring a lot of people together. So thank you very much. I'm happy to come anytime and I'm honored to have you as a friend. Likewise. We've, we've been speaking with Dr. Derek McFabe of the Kelly Patchell Evans Autism Research Group up there in Ontario, Canada. For more information 
visit us at differentbrains.com.